So it's hard actually to explain what happens in like three days. And most of the people that have already been through the program will really understand it's a transformation that happens. In, um, it's in, this, in this experience where you have the aha moments, but it's not just actually about learning um, different points. It's actually about understanding yourself, what you bring to your practice, uh, and how to get yourself kind of started on the best footing. How, how long does the program go for? It's a three-day program. It's an intensive, they're pretty long days. Uh, <laughs> so it's go three days. We run it every January, so once a year. And, um, you know, often there's a big bunch of people at that point in time. They've just graduated from their degree and they're contemplating how they're going to get started in the profession. And what I hate to see is really talented practitioners who just don't have the business skills and acumen to be able to get themselves started in a way that's going to set them up for success. And they end up doing it on the side of another job or end up leaving the profession entirely because they just don't know how to actually forge an income. Welcome to the Metagenics Best Practice Podcast, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, practitioner to practitioner conversations to inspire and mentor you in your own professional journey. Join Angela Carroll as she meets with practitioners from around Australia and New Zealand and hears how they work, live and grow in the natural medicine field. Why listen in today? Keone Moore has gone from initial struggle to strength to strength, even through the whole COVID-19 experience, her practices thrived. So how does she do it? How does she think? What can you learn from a highly successful practitioner and businesswoman who loves being in practice? A lot. Keone Moore is a naturopath and founding director of ReMed, one of Australia's leading natural medicine clinics, spread over two Melbourne locations. Since ReMed's inception in 2009, it has grown in leaps and bounds through the steady referrals from delighted clients and a strong patient retention process. As Keone says, you don't know what you don't know, so listen and learn. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. Today, I am with Keone Moore, who is a naturopathic practitioner from Melbourne. And Keone runs and operates a business virtually online these days, but uh, Melbourne-based. So hi, Keone. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Angela. <laughs> so um, are you actually in the clinic at the moment or are you, is, it, is, it, is it up and running or are you all home-based? At the moment we have reception and a few key people that are working out of the clinic and then all of the practitioners, all the naturopaths and nutritionists are working from home in telehealth appointments. So this week we had our myotherapist go back um, for the okay. first time in it's hard to even tell how long it's been. And so we're just really keeping the numbers of actual people in the clinic down uh, to minimum and having gaps between her patients so that we can still, and look, we've still been operating um, mostly at capacity throughout this time. So it's been, I guess, taking a few adjustments in terms of how we do that and making some you know, shifts to online appointments but the technology is there, so and it is actually pretty easy for us to convert over to an online platform. 
So do you, uh, when you say operating at full capacity, do you mind me asking, like what's, what's full capacity for Remed? Yeah, so we have uh, about 12 naturopaths uh, and one nutritionist. And so, you know, there certainly have been some practitioners that have been hit by higher cancellation rates, but certainly the practitioners that have been established um, for a longer period of time, like I haven't had any reduction in my client numbers. Uh, and I would see about 25 patients per week. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it edges up to 30 and that's taken into consideration though also mentor the other practitioners and run the clinic as well <laughs> uh, so that's really the kind of limit of you know my time across the clinic in the different areas uh, that I have available so and that certainly hasn't made any kind of changes to the bookings I think initially the first two weeks we were actually busier so we had um, some record weeks and then we had two weeks where there was a slump in new patients, uh, but now we're sort of coming back to normal levels for new patients as well. Right. So with um, the 25 a week, I think I've always felt the 25 week is a nice, comfortable amount of patients to see. It's a good patient load, keeps the clinic going, keeps you, you know, earning a good income, um, but without burning out. So easily. I think once you once you get up into the 30s to 40 patients a week, um, which is not unusual for for you know established busy practitioners, I think that's where you're pushing the limits of of uh, your HPA axis ability to cope with it all. Mm. Absolutely. And look, I back in when I first started Remed, so it's just over 10 years ago. I was seeing 45 to 50 patients per week then. Um, but it became pretty apparent when I started the clinic that I was a practitioner transitioning into the role as clinic manager and, um, you know, mentoring the other practitioners and then running the administrative sides of the business as well. It became apparent very quickly to me that I wouldn't be able to continue to see that many patients and be able to run the business effectively. Uh, so just looking at where I spend my time and Look, you know, certainly from my perspective, I always want to be a practitioner. So I love being in clinic. And so I could never imagine myself running a clinic and not seeing patients. But this balance keeps me in clinical practice where I'm seeing, you know, a reasonable number of patients, um, but not so much so that I can't do the other areas effectively. Mm. Was it a, a steep learning curve? You and I have spoken in the past about how many uh, people come out of practitioners come out of uh, college or even going through the college process and going, I'm going to be a practitioner. They don't think of themselves as I'm going to be a business person. You know, they don't have that consideration. Totally. I'm going to be running a business and I need to get some business skills up. That's probably one of the last things on their mind. Exactly. And certainly, you know, I was drawn to being a naturopath because I wanted to help people through my own experiences with my children. So it's no surprise that I see, I've always seen a high number of paediatric patients. But never once during my degree did I think about actually being a business owner. And that realization when it hits you pretty much at the end of the degree uh, is a bit interesting because you can't, then you're starting to try and do skills that you don't actually have. And I made so many mistakes in those, really the first five years. Uh, so <laughs> there was probably more mistakes than uh, anything else. But you know, a lot of that was I would do I did bookkeeping um, for the business. So I did bookkeeping for Remed in the early days. 
and taught myself how to lodge a statement. So I'm like, that was not a smart move. I should have just paid a bookkeeper to do that. Um, because you really want to hone in on what your strengths are and then get advice from people that know more about different aspects. So when I first opened RingMed, uh, it was pretty much a disaster because I was a practitioner that was busy, but I had no idea how to run a team. I didn't know how to be a leader. I had all of these stereotyped ideas about what being a leader meant, didn't know how to recruit. Uh, I was doing the bookkeeping, like there was all kinds of things where it was no wonder that the first 18 months actually was a real struggle. And I got to a point where uh, I didn't actually want to do it anymore and just went, what have I got myself into? Um, but that's when I actually got a business coach. I started doing, you know, really kind of understanding that, hey, this is a skill set that's completely different to being a practitioner and started to actually upskill myself in areas that I didn't have uh, any knowledge or expertise. And so now we, you know, I have a marketing consultant that works on remade marketing. I don't really do much of that myself, but I have enough knowledge that I can hold those people in my business accountable to what we need to have happen as a part of running the business. And so that's a, you know, an empowered delegation of those roles, which I think we need to have enough understanding that we can actually hold people accountable, but we don't actually have to know how to do everything ourselves either. No, no. I do think that you do, uh, you know, your point there about running everything, having the experience that you had gives you the visibility to know that I need to hire a coach so I can be better at this, or I need to hire a bookkeeper so that, you know, that's, that's not my strength. I think for some well, a lot of practitioners, particularly when you start off and you're on your own, even before you have to manage teams, you know, that aspect of, you know, wearing multiple hats, it's exhausting to start with. And there's all those little bits of what have I missed? What have I missed? What have I, you know, and, and you don't know what you don't know. Uh, so that constant, exactly. constant education process, you know, I think it is really worthwhile, which is one of the reasons why we set up, you know, the best practice branch of what we do at Metagenics is just to help practitioners to run their businesses more successfully. And I don't think that process ever stops. Like I still have a business coach now. And so the business coach that I go to has changed over the years because you get inspiration from different people and certainly different people bring different strengths within their own coaching as well. And as you learn more and develop more, but the actual needing to innovate and upskill doesn't ever change. It just, I guess what you're learning is different. Yeah, yeah. I liked, uh, I noticed on your website that you actually do a program to help new graduates. Uh, can you explain a little bit about that for me? Absolutely. So the graduate program is something that is a passion project of mine I would say because I just feel like I struggled so much when I graduated and going out to, into clinical practice and I was lucky enough that I went rented a room in a busy clinic with an acupuncturist and a psychologist so just the way that that happened meant that I actually did build up reasonably quickly in the first 12 months but there was just so many things that I had no idea I felt very isolated because I moved interstate. I didn't really have any of my colleagues around me. Uh, so you go from an environment where you've got all of your peers, you have supervisors, uh, and it's a very supportive role to 
being out and on your own, not really understanding how to attract new patients. So I guess the graduate program is all the things that you don't know when you graduate and what you need to know to be able to be successful in clinical practice. So it's hard actually to explain what happens in that three days. And most of the people that have already been through the program will really understand it's a transformation that happens. In, um, it's, and, it's, and it's the experience where you have the aha moments, but it's not just actually about learning um, different points. It's actually about understanding yourself, what you bring to your practice, uh, and how to get yourself kind of started on the best footing. How, how long does the program go for? It's a three-day program. It's an intensive, they're pretty long days. Uh, so it's go three days. We run it every January, so once a year. And, um, you know, often there's a big bunch of people at that point in time. They've just graduated from their degree and they're contemplating how they're going to get started in the profession. And what I hate to see is really talented practitioners who just don't have the business skills and acumen to be able to get themselves started in a way that's going to set them up for success. And they end up doing it on the side of another job or end up leaving the profession entirely because they just don't know how to actually forge an income. And I think that we actually make a big difference to our patients' lives and being able to do this full time and have a healthy income from it is something that we really, um, you know, I think is vital to the future of the profession. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, practitioners that only practice part-time um, and don't have big patient loads. And I think, you know, if you can't keep your head above water and you can't keep your focus on your, your passion, uh, that of actually being in, in the industry as a naturopath or a nutritionist or a herbalist, then, you know, it, it's, there's not a lot of incentive to keep going. There's not a lot of incentive to stay in the industry if you're not, if you know, you know, you're not thriving in there. So it's, it's sad to see that big dropout rate that we do have. Yes, exactly. And I don't think that needs to be the case either. I think that it's just really about uh, embracing the fact that we're going to be in business. If we're in clinical practice, we are actually a business owner. And I really see that uh, as a profession, we shy away from that. So we like to think of ourselves as not in business or shy away from marketing like it's something evil and, um, you know, but it's all just part of being in business. And if you do it with integrity and a genuine, I guess, inspiration to help people, then that's what holds you accountable for not doing things that are underhanded or, you know, I guess that idea of marketing is trying to trick people into services or products that they don't need, but that's certainly not the way that I see it. So I see it as how do I communicate? There's a whole bunch of people out there that would really benefit from seeing a naturopath. How do I access them and let them know what we do and how that's going to help them? And that's how I view marketing. And if I come from that point where it's just actually a genuine representation of what we do inside the clinic room, so that can be easily communicated to the people that are going to benefit, uh, then that works. And you know, I think if you do marketing from a genuine point of view, it works better anyway. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You're not, you know, you are in the process of selling. We kind of don't, we don't, I think a lot of practitioners don't think of themselves as salespeople, but they are. They're selling, they're selling health. 
they're selling a better, better picture of life for that patient and they're selling themselves. And they kind of think, oh, you know, I don't want to give too much product or I don't want to, you know, have my patients spend too much money, but they're putting then financial limitations on their patient's health and the patient might not have the same belief or value factors um, and really just want everything that the practitioner can offer. Absolutely. And I think that there is actually often a big gap between what the practitioner thinks and what the client thinks. Like their reality is not necessarily the same. As naturopaths, we're often, you know, we care about our services being accessible, about being affordable, and so therefore we think we need to be the cheapest. But time and time again, patients feel like the one that's most expensive is actually a better practitioner. Or, um, you know, they think that as practitioners, we think that oh, they'll know when they need to come back. But for patients, they're like confused when they don't get guidance from the practitioner. And they're often left with, oh, maybe it's not as bad as what I thought, or maybe my, you know, my symptoms are not important enough. And just really confused about why they haven't been given a recommendation. So I see very much that the perspective of the practitioner is not actually necessarily aligned to that of the patient. And in a lot of ways, practitioners can really undermine what's actually best for the patient. If they're not aware of their own, uh, I guess, decisions that they're making on behalf of the patient without ever actually asking the patient. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think a, a good rule of thumb is to offer them what is the ultimate that you could offer them? What is the ultimate package? You know, so if you need to see them every two weeks, then you need to see them every two weeks to keep them on board. You know, if, if, you, if they need to have five products as opposed to having three products, if you, you can at least put it out there and say, this is, you know, as the expert, as your trusted healthcare advisor, this is what you actually need to get the results that you want. This is what I'm recommending. Now, and if they pull back and they say, look, I can't afford that or I, I don't have every two weeks, can't do that, then, um, you know, that, that, that gives you the opportunity to have those conversations. But if you don't tell them what they're needing, straight up then how do they know yeah absolutely and i guess from my perspective the the two things that i hold myself accountable to as a practitioner is ha, have i impacted their health that their health outcomes are going to be different in five years to now That's because i don't yeah i don't as a practitioner want to make them feel better for a couple of weeks and then just go back to what they were doing before and five years down the track this is just a little blip in their history. We want it actually to be a trajectory point where their health is noticeably better in five years' time. Now, that doesn't mean I see them every two weeks for five years, but it does mean that I'm kind of checking in with them. And even once everything is improved and then not symptomatic, a lot of practitioners see that as the exit point for care, but I actually get most excited at that point because if we're gonna really truly work outside of a sickness model of health, where we're only dealing with people when they have symptoms and problems, then, and we wanna to shift to actually preventative health, which is at the core philosophy of what we do, then we actually need to work with people when they are well, not just sick. Uh, so when they're well, I'm like, okay, now we can really get stuck into some lifestyle education. This is where I might talk to them about reducing plastics in their environment or what's in their cosmetics that they didn't realise, um, anything that might pertain to their overall health but be edging themselves to a better sense of well-being over a period of time. Mm. And there's so many of those aspects 
that we never quite get to in consults because we're too busy dealing with symptoms and problems. Uh, so I get excited when we're acting in a much more proactive or preventative way. It's easier to treat well people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I guess pain points are always a motivator, aren't they? So I don't often get patients that come and go, I'm actually feeling fine. I'm just looking at how I can improve my health. I love it when I do, but unfortunately we've all grown up and we've all been taught, you know, our culture is around sickness and all of health. We don't seek health unless there's something wrong. And so that might be the initial motive, um, motivator, but we really want to help educate patients out of only seeking help when there's problems and actually listening to their body and listen to the niggles because a lot of people actually have the early signs, the early little niggles that happen before the symptoms get worse. But we just keep ignoring them and saying, oh, I'll go away. I'll see how I am next week until it gets so bad that they can't cope with it anymore. So really educating them about how they can turn it around earlier on um, because human nature is they don't always do what we say forever. And so that's the human experience and just helping them stay on track and helping from an accountability point of view, I feel like is one of the most important things I do and that's outside of any prescription. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I really love how you've got that five-year plan, that five-year vision that's there, you know, and just laying foundations for them. So I'm curious because, that, as you said, a lot of practitioners think, well, that's the exit point. You get your patient well and then that's their exit point, whereas uh, I have the same belief system as you do is, that, you know, it's wellness, wellness care in the long term. So how do you have that conversation? How do you get your patients to that transition point and to get them to stay with you do do you get pushback do you have a planned conversation do you is there a strategy that you utilize to ensure that they stay with you for wellness yeah so the most important point i think for that is not waiting to the transition point to start that education so it really i'll be starting it from the first and second appointment so in the second appointment we treat that like report of findings, so we will be going through their treatment plan and I'll sort of show them what that looks like. So our first step is to deal with your problems and your symptoms. Our second step, so if we take, for example, someone with estrogen dominance, um, so we might be just dealing with their hormonal issues in the first phase, but then we're looking at, well, actually, we know that your estrogen levels are higher because you have dysbiosis, and a high level of beta-glucuronidase activity in the gut. So our second step is going to be dealing with your gut, and our third step is going to be dealing with the liver processing of estrogen. So then I go, okay, well, now at the end of this process, the hormones are really beautifully balanced, your gut and liver function, everything, you know, you feel fantastic, that's great. So then let's actually reduce how often I'm seeing you. So I might see you every six months. I might see you every three months, but in that time I'll be like, oh, okay, so you're still doing this, so you're still exercising. Um, and then that's a perfect opportunity to start looking at reducing xenoestrogens in their life. And they've, you know, I guess those reminder checking points are like, are you still doing this? Are you still doing that? That's the accountability bit, bringing in extra education. Um, but then going, okay, once a year, we're actually going to do a bit of a liver detox. But this is your wellness plan of going, we're just going to top up and improve that system once a year. It's very different to being on uh, products or supplements every single day. 
but it's really going to keep you in that wellness point of view. I'm having that exact conversation in the second appointment. Great. So by the time they get to that point, they're already expecting me to say it. So they'll go, ah, oh, I'll guess that I'll see in three months now. So if their patient is already predicting what you're going to say because you've educated them about how the process works, then you find that they actually engage in it because they actually really feel great and they want to stay that way. Uh, I think that you get the drop-off or the pushback when you're not doing that education leading up to that point. And if you try and educate them about staying in care when the patient's already decided that they think it's the exit point, then it just seems like you're trying to coerce them into staying into appointments for no reason. Even if that's not where you're coming from, it just doesn't land quite right. So I'm really educating them about what is sickness model of health, what is wellness model of health, what does that look like? They know for me that if everything's going well, that's when I push out their appointments. If everything's not going well, then I shorten them. Uh, and that's something that they're aware of as well. They come in and they're like, oh, yeah, I didn't actually stay on, you know, doing the dietary things and I haven't taken my herbs. I guess you're going to make me come, you know, I'm going to come back in four weeks instead of six weeks next time. So if they, and what you can hear in that is they have a true understanding of the process. And I think that's just, we need to educate patients what that looks like. What's your retention rate, roughly? Would you, would you say that 20% of people stay on for wellness or would it be higher than that? Where are you at? Oh, uh, no, I would say that probably 80% of my patients stay long-term. Yeah. That's, that's how so it's... Of course, yeah, so I literally have uh, patients that I've been seeing for 14 years um, that's still current on my books now and whole families um, of that's the case. And so a lot of people, I guess a lot of practitioners might hesitate at that and go, well, do they really need to? It's like, well, you know, if they've got an autoimmune condition, then absolutely. Uh, the, that autoimmune condition's not going away. Um, but the patients will, if they don't see value, they won't come back. It's what they can't keep coming back because they get value out of those appointments and they understand the process and they know how much better that they feel because of the process and that it keeps them accountable. Mm. So I might only say, it's not like those patients are coming every two weeks. I might see them every six months or even every 12 months, but they'll walk out of their appointment and go, I'm rebooking my appointment in 12 months because they're engaged and they understand why. They're not just thinking I'm asking them to do it randomly. No, and, and you know, I think it's you know, as far as practitioners questioning whether people need to stay long term in care. For us, we work in the industry, we live in it, we we read articles on it, we you know, we that's where we go to, and so that really is, if you like, our way of staying accountable, our way of staying engaged with it. For our patients, they go back to being their accountant or going back to being a mum, or yeah, you know, and that's not in their life every day. So if we can keep them engaged and keep that, um, well, you know, coaching, so to speak, really health coaching process happening, mm -hmm. um, then, then we do create a better, healthier world. Absolutely. And that's how we make difference long-term. Mm -hmm. That's how the trajectory in five years of their health is, very, is vastly different. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's, that's um, really interesting. With the... Uh, mentoring program that you do the, for the uh, graduates, 
is do you cover that sort of material in there? Absolutely. So <laughs> the, the big focus is, so the grad program is not about covering off what they learn in their undergraduate degree, but it's more about what do I need to know to get started in the business? Um, how do I work out my dispensary or um, certainly in terms of setting up, you know, their different business structures. But the most important thing, and actually the predominance of what we spend the time on, is how to set up client expectations. Because 50% of what you're doing in every consultation is managing the patient and managing them around change. How to implement change, how to stick with the change. Because a lot of times people are in a particular situation with their health because of their habits and their behaviours. And so if you're wanting to change that, then it's really working on 50% is actually working on that. And that's something we don't really cover so much in our undergraduate degrees. And I'm saying that the prescription and the diet is only 50% of what we do. So we focus a lot on how we actually pre-frame this with patients, how we get them engaged in their own healthcare, keep them motivated uh, and see the bigger picture, not just, oh, I've got a symptom, I'm going to take a herb for a symptom, the symptom's gone, that's it. What we do is actually much bigger than that. Mm. Yeah, we definitely are change facilitators. I think I've said it a few times that the colleges would do well to maybe throw out your counselling subject and put in change facilitation subjects in there. You know, if your patient needs to see a counsellor, send them to someone that's done a three-year, four-year course in it. Um, you know, the, the small amount that we use, that we learn isn't really, you know, suitable, but the um, change facilitation is, is crucial. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, also something else that I uh, caught my eye when I was looking at uh, around your clinic virtually uh, are your 20-minute onboarding, 20-minute free consultation, consultation in inverted commas, that you do. Um, so why did you choose to set that up? Why did you choose to have, does, does 20 minutes free, is that a waste of time for you? Is it costing you? It's a great question, Angela. And a lot of people would, you know, I guess the idea of just giving away what we do for free um, is not a healthy one for the business, but that's certainly not what the 20 minute um, free sessions are about. So, and I think when you get behind the rationale of why we do that, it becomes a lot more apparent. So what I would say is that naturopathy is a high cost entry point. So someone has to have enough trust in me, my service, my clinic to pay the initial consultation fee before they even know me, know if I can help them or whether it's actually even what they want. So say for my initial fee is 220, like that's a huge amount of trust that you need to have to book that appointment and be prepared to pay that amount with actually knowing nothing about the service. And when I started in practice 14 years ago, we didn't have as much social media like we do now. And so it was very much, you've relied on word of mouth. And I can't tell you how many times I met someone and they said, oh, great, I've been wanting to see a naturopath for like the last five years, but I don't know anyone. And certainly back then, what I really learned quite quickly is that people don't look up 
in the yellow pages that now are going back a while um, or Google these days um, and go, oh, I'm just going to find a random naturopath that I don't really know anything about. Now, as social media has changed and we're more online than ever, then I think we are seeing more of that happen. But if there's, it's still a question of trust. How much do I trust this person or this brand or this clinic and how much are they willing me, um, you know, how much am I willing to pay to just check it out? So the 20-minute free consult isn't actually trying to cram an initial appointment into a 20-minute session. It's actually a more of an opportunity for that person to meet the practitioner, ask some questions, and the practitioner going, okay, well, this is how we would operate. And so that gives them the opportunity the opportunity to break down those some of those trust barriers that stop people from booking an initial appointment. Mm. So, but it's really important how you conduct those 20 minute appointments. So you don't go in asking them, oh, okay, so you get headaches. How often do you get headaches? How severe are they? Have you noticed any foods exacerbate them? The minute you start talking like that, it's a consultation. So we actually, deliberately don't ask about the symptoms because you've got to differentiate between the 20-minute session and what is actually an initial appointment. So we will talk about the impact. Okay, so you're getting headaches. How does that impact your life? How does it impact your work? How does it impact your happiness, well-being? How does it affect your family? So we're really actually getting them to engage in how important it is to them to be able to deal with this issue. We'll look at, okay, in the past, what's, you know, what stopped you in life because of these headaches? In the future, if you don't resolve these issues, then what's the cost going to be to you, your work, your family? And that is a powerful conversation because it gets them aligned with actually how motivated are they to really make a change here? And for some people, they're not that motivated, and that's okay. They don't have to engage in care. But it's an alignment kind of time where you go, okay, well, I can see you really care about this. As a practitioner, this is the approach that I would take. Does that sound like it's going to fit with you? Let's get you started. Uh, and that's the major differentiation that we have is that it's not a consultation in terms of giving, you know, collecting their health history and giving a prescription at the end. It's actually more about is naturopathy uh, an avenue that they want to pursue. Mm, I like it. Sounds uh, like yes. I do in my coaching. So it's really about getting that awareness and making sure that you're anchoring their pain point um, with how it impacts their life and what they want from it, and that you're the you're the person that can guide them through that process. Absolutely. And what happens a lot in those 20-minute sessions is tears because they actually really connect in with the cost of their symptom in their life. And people are often suffering but not necessarily sitting down and really thinking about it like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that what 20 minutes is an incredibly powerful in terms of getting them to connect in on that about the real cost in their life but also does amazing things for rapport between the practitioner um, and the client as well. And that immediately creates a much greater sense of trust that the idea of them booking an initial appointment and paying the initial fee 
is no longer an obstacle to accessing care. And every one of your participants uh, does those minute onboarding. And, and so yes. they're all trained. I imagine you've trained them in a sequence and a process to, to take through with that. Yes. So what's, what's, Absolutely. How, what would be the conversion rate? So how many, uh, what percentage of people that would come in for the free 20 minutes would actually convert into paying clients? Well, it's interesting because before and after training on them. <laughs> so often we'll, we actually measure the conversion rates of those 20 minutes and we'd be expecting 70 to 80% um, will convert over. It's not 100% because it isn't actually, you know, sometimes people don't actually want to continue in and that's okay. Like this is not about coercing them into naturopathic care. It's actually a genuine assessment of whether this is going to be good for them and whether they choose it. Uh, if we drop below 70 or 80%, then we know that actually we need to do more training with our team and it's actually more about how our practitioners are running those 20 minutes. So we've had times where we've um, measured it and it's been 40 or 50%. We're like, whoa, uh, time to do some training <laughs> um, so that we can really make the most um, of those opportunities because it's really about helping people at the end of the day uh, and doing it in a way that they can see the value. Yeah, yeah. So do you do, you do a lot of team trainings in the practice? Yes, we do. <laughs> we, <laughs> we have a lot of meetings, Angela. Uh, and the reason that we have a lot of meetings is that's our platform for training. So we have a meeting once a week with an naturopath, and that will be professional development in terms of clinical cases and, uh, you know, managing different conditions. And then once a fortnight, we have a business meeting, which is more about this. So we'll do training on conducting the 20-minute appointments, um, client retention, moving patients from sickness to wellness model of health. Like we'll be talking about all of those concepts. And it's not like we do it once and then never do it again because um, we revisit it, particularly with that reporting. We know our numbers. And so if we see an area that's dropping, then we'll focus our training around that particular area. And then we have a meeting once a month, which is a whole team meeting where those reports are shared. So uh, all of those stats are done by the teams. Okay. All right. That um, must have a lot of organising to get, was it 15, 15 practitioners together each meeting? Yeah. So it's been actually a lot easier online because we just, um, you know, have a Zoom meeting and, um, and go from there. So... Obviously, it's been a bit of a transition in terms of just the dynamics of being online, but um, we've all been at home. We've still had all of the meetings. It's not like just because we're not in the clinic that we've not been having them. Um, it's a really important aspect of development of practitioners and as the clinic as a whole uh, is to be having some dedicated time for upskilling. Great, great. So it's, it's a forward-thinking practice by all means. Yeah, so you've done a wonderful job. You should be very proud of, of the clinic that you've got there and, and the team that you run. It sounds like your team's pretty stable. Yeah, yeah. Like with anything, we do have turnover of um, practitioners. Uh, we don't really have any turnover of our staff. All of our staff have been with us for a really long time. 
and, and you know that will be for different reasons so but the core group is you know is stable so that's that is a, a good sign it means that uh, your relationships are working <laughs> yeah <laughs> definitely um, is there any any um, other standout aspects about the clinic that you do that you're really proud of that um, you want to share and there's a, quite a few things I saw you have uh, programs that you run and you've got a, a fertility program and you've got your pandas program and and so forth um, and I found that really um, good that you've actually got them there as core components of, of what you offer uh, some practitioners find the concept of a program too um, confined if you like for want of a better word um, and the thing that really caught my eye on the pregnancy one the fertility one was a hundred percent money-back guarantee uh, if they don't conceive in the six-month period so you're obviously very confident that the program works. Absolutely. And I think what uh, is really important about um, some of these programs is the clarity of the communication to the patient. Uh, and that actually is very reassuring and builds trust. And that's the most important thing. I guess with the fertility program, we know our numbers. We actually did five years of measuring our numbers before we released the program. So this was a long-term project that we were working on. And it's certainly not something that we kind of threw out there without really understanding the process of what we were doing and the results we could get. And so we obviously have exclusion criteria for that program. And so people that come along that maybe don't meet the criteria, so there is an age limit, uh, we do need to exclude any, you know, physical or structural issues with fertility. Um, but that's sensible because, but people are not put off by that. They're not put off by the having the inclusion or exclusion criteria because what that gives them is a sense of we really understand the people that we work best with. We know who the, the subgroup of women or couples that are having trouble conceiving um, that respond best to the type of treatment that we do. And we're just very clear about that. And that is immensely reassuring to patients. People that don't fall within the inclusion criteria often still work with us. They just don't go on that particular program, but they'll do it alongside other areas. But they even the people that are in that, in that category really appreciate how clear we are and honest about what we can and can't do. Mm. Yeah, so it's not setting expectations. Mm. No, if anything, it's the opposite and just being very clear about what we can do. Yeah, yeah, love it. It's, um, and, and is there a sort of a, a uh, what would I call it, a format that they follow? You know, appointment one is these conversations and this kind of treatment, appointment number two, is, a set, is there a set protocol that they actually follow on those? Yeah, well, the programs are all set up to have a structure. Uh, so that would be more around the appointments uh, and the length of time that they're in the program. It's what is not actually dictated is products. Right. So the what's included is the appointments are included, um, the testing's included and the supplements are included when we're looking at those programs. But what we do to allow flexibility for individualization of treatment 
is we set a supplement budget. So that practitioner can actually prescribe anything they want as long as it comes within the budget. And we've set up that budget based on a whole lot of other cases that we've had over the last five years. So we're really clear about what sort of budget we would expect um, to be able to utilise. And so this is really important, particularly when you look at something like fertility, where often so much of the focus is on the female partner, whereas, you know, 40 to 50% of the time, it really needs to be on the male partner. One of the beauties about this program is that the money back guarantee really speaks to the male partner. It's a bit of a stereotype, but that's what, you know, that's what we've found in um, our clinical um, surveys. And that gets them engaged in care. So one of the criteria for being in the program is that both partners are involved. And that's immensely helpful to a practitioner who knows that really the male partner needs to be involved, but can be the more hesitant party uh, in that traumatic care. So it's a great avenue to go, okay, you come in as a couple. Yeah. Uh, we do the assessments on you as a couple. And then we have uh, the ability to use more of the supplement budget on the male partner or the female partner or spread it evenly out across both partners, depending on their individual circumstances and what comes back in the assessments. Mm -hmm. And do you, do you find that there's a subcategory of um, people trying to conceive that you know, get results within six weeks? So we, as a part of that program, actually actively don't want them to get uh, to conceive in the first 12 weeks because we have found that detoxification is a really important part of the first step of um, fertility. And so that's often what we're doing as a part of that program in those initial stages. So we are actively asking them not to get pregnant, which is a little bit, I guess, conflicting because often couples feel pressured around time, particularly if um, they're getting to that older end of childbearing age. So certainly asking them to hold back for a month or two can be challenging, but we've just found it's a really important part of getting the results at the end of the day that you can't skip past that bit uh, and still expect to get the same results. Yeah, no, I totally, totally agree with that. We need that, need that absolute time for the health of the, the eggs and the sperm to really make sure that they're making the ultimate, the ultimate baby. <laughs> so interesting, <laughs> I mean, you know, people will spend so much time and effort planning a wedding, months and months to plan their wedding generally. And then, oh, let's have a baby. Let's, let's make it happen now. You know, it's, it's, and no thought process goes into if they want that perfect wedding day, it's the same process that they want the perfect child or as perfect as possible. Uh, child you know there's there's so much work that goes into that preparation stage mm. absolutely and i've never thought of it like that angela but it's a great analogy isn't it of um, the amount of preparation that goes into a wedding day most people would plan for 12 months um and but i think it's an education aspect that if patients or couples that are trying to conceive have the knowledge that we had then they would understand that so I think we've got a lot of work to do in terms of really just 
getting that information out to the general public. So there is a greater awareness of, you know, young couples just, if they've just gotten married, expect to be able to just get pregnant. They don't really think about it as a preparation process. But uh, I think if there was a greater awareness of that, that would be really beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For generations to come. I was listening to yes. <laughs> a thing, uh, was it, it was a uh, new information on PTSD, so new uh, findings in PTSD. And they are finding that it can be transgenerational. So they've looked at um, survivors of the Holocaust and actually found out that not only does the survivors who have the PTSD, their children have PTSD, even though they didn't go through the trauma itself, they weren't actually involved in the trauma. So, you know, just something like that, you know, what are they passing down to the next generations through epigenetic imprinting and programming? Uh, it's, it's really fascinating. So we're actually just on the... On Incredible. The yeah, PTSD, we're actually finding now that um, you predispose, yes, it's a predisposition, you have um, epigenetic changes, brain changes, physiological changes that predispose you to getting and keeping PTSD. Most people have it clear, you know, there's a trauma and they're over that trauma within three months. Um, but those that stay with that trauma um, have a predisposition, a genetic predisposition, an epigenetic predisposition. So... Mm. Yeah. preconception care so important <laughs> so important exactly but if we can go that way with ptsd then it can go that way with positive influences oh, as well so and <laughs> disturbing and reassuring in the same <laughs> sentence <laughs> yes hey, so um your your particular uh focus area my understanding is uh with pans and pandas yes how did you fall into that world well that's a great question i have always seen a high number of pediatric patients so i guess i have four kids of my own and i became a naturopath because of illness uh, with one of my children so it just kind of naturally evolved that i started seeing kids mainly eczema recurrent ear infections tummy aches that kind of thing to start with but you know, I guess as time has gone on that I've had a much more focus on neurodevelopmental conditions, uh, ADHD, autistic spectrum, that kind of um, area. But it really happened because one of my patients developed um, pandas uh, whilst under my care. And so that kind of really made me delve into, hey, what is this all about? And uh, really started researching uh, and a, you know, a huge level to try and work out what to do for this family because this was, and I, I think the quite troubling thing about PANS or PANDAS is that it's a, this is a neurotypical child that has an infection and all of a sudden has uh, huge amounts of anxiety OCD, tics, uh, aggression, like it can be really, it's very impactful on the family unit. So to watch a family that I cared for deeply go through this, I was compelled to help them. And so there was no textbook on how to do that. And then actually about 18 months later, another one of my patients um, developed PAM. So it was just this kind of natural progression. I think I was always going to, to head here with my career 
and I, I think about even from those earlier experiences of why I was drawn to become a naturopath in the first place, right through to the patients that I've had. And so I certainly in those earlier cases took longer to get the results than what I do now because I had to kind of go through a process of working out what worked and what didn't. So I'm much clearer about that now. And, um, and I have probably about 25 cases of documented complete resolution of the condition oh. where those children now get sick and don't have any um, flares at all, which, you know, I guess is, um, you know, a body of work that I'm, I've been kind of developing over the last sort of five years with a view to publish a book on, on the findings of what I find works and, and doesn't work. So, well, that's and now it makes 80% of my client load is pans and Really? Is it, is it increasing? Are you finding an increasing number of incidences occurring? Is, is that something? Yeah, and I think the reality is that it's actually fairly common. So in the US, we don't have any great statistics in Australia because the condition is very poorly acknowledged. In the US, there is a bit more understanding and a few more networks and clinics based around PANS and PANDAS. And they estimate between one and 250 children would have PANS. And ticks and OCD are incredibly common in children. So it's hard to know whether it's on the increase or whether our awareness has improved. Because certainly for me personally, there's a referral bias. For me, it feels like it's increased. But only because my patient load has increased and that really comes from referrals uh, from my current parents that I'm working with or on some of the parent support groups on social media. Yeah, the reason, the reason I'm asking about the increasing incidents is that um, there, well, we didn't learn about pans and pandas when I was at college. You know, it just wasn't a, something that was much of a thing that we saw, as same with autism and you know, ADHD, absolutely, definitely was on the radar at the time. But, you know, going back, 20 plus years ago, 20, where am I to now? 30 years ago, going back 30 years, it just wasn't something that, that really was spoken about or observed, or you know, it, was, it was really quite rare. So that's where my curiosity was around that. Yeah, and it's interesting because the research actually dates back to the late 1980s. So that was when it was first discovered. And there's been consistent research through that whole period since I think the first publication was about 1989 by Dr. Susan Sweeto and her team at the National Institutes of Mental Health. And so it's hard to know whether it's increased in prevalence or whether it's actually just an awareness thing that maybe a lot of children that come see me have been diagnosed with Tourette's, for example, and the research shows us that about 25% of children that are diagnosed with Tourette's or OCD actually have PANS. Okay. So it may be diagnosed under a different classification previously. I'm not really sure. It's hard to know because I guess that awareness was so low, particularly in the uh, 90s. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, you're doing, you're doing great work there, making the world a healthier place. I'm very impressed and I love, love the clinic when I get to Melbourne sometime when I'm allowed to fly again. Uh, then I love coming and see, see what it looks like on the, get my virtual, move a virtual tour into 3D real stuff. 
can see it there. That would be awesome. A lot to offer. So the uh, podcast is called Standing on the Shoulders of Giants and you're absolutely, if people could stand on your shoulders, they'd get a better view of the world. Any advice that you have for practitioners, anybody that's listening about being in practice? I think the single piece of advice that I would recommend to practitioners is that you don't know what you don't know and always having access to someone who has walked that path before you can save you a lot of heartache (laughs) along the way. So we have in our profession now so many more opportunities for mentoring and reaching out to experienced practitioners that I think that's really having someone in your life that has actually more experience than you that you can go to for inspiration, ideas, uh, is a really important process of making less mistakes and being able to stick it out in the profession because we all are drawn here by a deeper passion. So being able to make it a career and be able to help more people, I think is what it's all about at the end of the day. Mm, I totally agree with you. Thank you so much for your time, for all of that, Peony, and uh, we'll keep keep our conversations going. (laughs) My pleasure. Thanks, Angela. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Best Practice Podcast. We hope you found today's discussion helpful in your own professional journey. Sharing our experiences as practitioners is such a great way to develop together. So before you go, why not take a moment to share this episode with someone that you know will value it. And whether you're listening on iTunes, Spotify or any of the other platforms, remember to like and review the episode too. We read all of your comments and would love to hear your suggestions for future topics. Head to metagenics.com.au for downloads, links and other business support materials. Standing on the shoulders of giants, supporting you in creating your best practice.